Good morning, everyone. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary. I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Pastor Tom is traveling this week. You probably, maybe you know this, I don't know if you do, but um, Tom is a great mentor to a lot of young pastors, including the pastors on our staff team, which we're thankful for, um, as well as to a number of pastors in our community and across our country as well. And this week, he is helping to train and mentor a group of pastors uh, that are a part of the movement of churches that Calvary is a part of, which is called the Evangelical Free Church of America. And he helps lead them and gather them and help them learn and grow as pastors. So you might pray for Tom this week as he is away. But this morning we are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke called Good News for All People. Who do you think Jesus is? There are lots of opinions about him, a lot of ways to answer that, wide-ranging ideas today about who Jesus is. A couple weeks ago, uh, several of the pastors from our staff were at a different pastor's conference. That's basically what pastors do is go to conferences and then preach on Sundays. We were in Chicago um, at a theology conference, and one of the speakers there, Gavin Ortland, who pastors a church in California, mentioned a recent interaction he had with someone who's a member of his community, and he asked a similar question. He said to this man, what do you think about Jesus? And the man said, I don't think about him at all. My friends, I believe what we think about Jesus matters. If you're here this morning, and Jesus is the furthest thing from your mind, could I ask you to think about him with me for the next 30 minutes or so? Or maybe you're here this morning and you've been thinking a lot about Jesus recently, but you just aren't quite sure what to make of him. I think maybe a lot of people who might not normally think about Jesus have been thinking about him. Did you see the Super Bowl commercials about Jesus? They've caused lots of reactions. A lot of people have shared their perspectives and viewpoints and opinions about Jesus. There have always been a wide variety of perspectives about who Jesus is. And the text we're going to look at today together shares three perspectives about him. And my hope is that as we look at them together, we will see Jesus for who he really and truly is, and that some of us might gain a new perspective about him. So grab your Bibles or the ones in front of you and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. Luke is in the New Testament, which is basically the second half of your Bible. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. The first four books of the New Testament are biographies about Jesus, about his life and ministry and his death and resurrection. And we've been journeying together in this series in Luke's detailed account of Jesus's life and ministry since the fall of this year. As you're turning to chapter 19, I want to remind you about an important milestone that happened in Luke's gospel. We've mentioned it a few times. It's from chapter 9 and verse 51. I'll put it on the screen for you. It says, when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, 
Jerusalem is where Jesus' life will ultimately come to an end on the cross, which is not an accident. Jesus set his face to go there, to accomplish the plan of God, which Jesus knows and why he intentionally travels there. And the tone of Luke's gospel, his account of the life of Jesus, changes. It shifts after this verse. The first nine chapters of Luke primarily focus on the things that Jesus did, like the calling of his disciples, the performing of miracles, the healing of people. And then the next 10 chapters are mostly centered on the things that Jesus said, his teaching, which served in part to prepare his disciples for what they would experience when they arrived at Jerusalem. And our verses today describe that moment. Jesus' arrival into that great city. Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. And when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, whereon entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, well, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Each of the four gospel writers document this event, the triumphal entry. It comes five days before the death of Jesus and seven days before he rose from the dead. Now, we usually talk about it on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter. So don't freak out. Easter isn't next week. We have some time. This is just where we found ourselves today. But Luke reports three reactions to Jesus' arrival. The first reaction is in verse 37, and it comes from a crowd. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. The whole multitude of his disciples. This is an enormous group. The other gospel writers, and even later Luke, refers to it as a crowd. And it creates quite a spectacle and a stir in the city. They are loudly rejoicing and praising God because of Jesus and his arrival. 
and because of all the mighty works they had seen him accomplish throughout his ministry. It's an amazing moment. The crowd is spontaneously praising God and declaring that Jesus is king. Now, if you've ever been a part of a large crowd, you know that they are contagious. There's an enthusiasm that spreads. That large group kind of draws you in to what they're doing. And what begins with his followers spreads beyond to a crowd that is simply caught up in the celebration and the spectacle of what's happening. They're saying in verse 38, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, why do they call Jesus a king? I mean, the dude rolls into Jerusalem on a donkey. That doesn't sound very regal. And prior to this moment, Jesus had kind of tamped down the enthusiasm that people had for him. He'd try to calm them down when they would try to name him king. But things have changed. It's time now in the ministry of Jesus for him to be recognized for who he is. And just notice what's happened around this text leading up to this moment. Last week, Perry led us in the end of chapter 18 and the beginning of chapter 19. And we saw this story of Jesus' encounter with a blind beggar in chapter 18. He was by the roadside begging, and he heard a crowd going by, and he asked what was happening, and they said, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And that blind beggar saw Jesus for who he was, because when Jesus walked by, he said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David is a regal title, a royal one. It's amazing that a blind beggar could truly see who Jesus was in spite of his blindness. A king, the descendant of the great Jewish king, David. And then earlier in chapter 19, Jesus shares his mission statement. When he says of himself, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. That title is a messianic one. One that is filled with layers of meaning from the Old Testament. And so you have these two titles, the Son of David, the Son of Man, and then following Jesus' self-declaration as the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost, he tells a parable. And that parable is all about a kingdom. And of course, in this moment that we're witnessing, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem which is a royal city, the seat of that great King David, where all the kings of Israel had sit on, sat on a throne. It was the center of the Jewish world. And the crowd is shouting and acclaiming a quote from the Old Testament psalm that was always sung at this time of year. Psalm 118, verse 26 says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you from the house of the Lord. This, Psalm 118, was a series of psalms, five of them, 113 through 118, that were always sung at the Passover celebration. People would sing it as they would prepare to receive the Passover and hear this crowd spontaneously 
rejoices and praises God and speaks this Old Testament prophecy that foretells one day a king will come to Jerusalem as the Messiah. And so the crowd is right to call him a king. It's not hyperbole to do so. That's who Jesus is. But it's worth noting how easy it is to get caught up in a crowd. How infectious their enthusiasm is. Crowds are contagious. But crowds are also capricious. Fickle. They change their mind. They're quick to change their perspective about someone. And this large crowd that on Palm Sunday is crying out, crown him. Five days later, we'll cry something else, won't they? What will they say on Friday? Crucify. Crowds are fickle. And so we should be careful, friends, to not simply get caught up in a mob mentality about Jesus. We need, each one of us, ourselves, to decide who he is. Because crowds, crowds often celebrate the spectacle of Jesus. They just love him for who they can see him as. Their own personal ideas that they can project on him. It's so easy to get caught up in a spectacle. There's a spectacle that's happening at CU football right now, right? And I am loving every minute of it. Earlier this week, I'm sitting in front of my computer, constantly refreshing, trying to get tickets to the spring game like I'm a teenager who wants to see Taylor Swift. It's unbelievable. All of my dreams are coming true. And how easy is it to just get so excited about something that you see happening and all of these things that you want to happen and to just get caught up in the crowd? But my friends, we are not simply fans of Jesus. We're not called to just simply cheer him on from a distance, to be spectators, but then to stay on the sideline ourselves. Jesus doesn't call his followers to be faceless observers, but to be faithful disciples that follow him. And that's the first perspective from the crowd. The second is from his critics in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. These are the religious leaders of the day, and they know what's happening. They know all of this Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. They know what's happening right now, that Jesus is claiming his authority as king, as the one true king, and that by receiving the praise of the people, he is declaring himself to be God's promised Messiah. Later in the chapter, in verses 47 and 48, Jesus was teaching daily in the temple, it says. And the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. 
They see Jesus receiving the adulation of the crowd, and they say, this must be stopped. Jesus' critics would go to any length to silence him, to stop his ministry from continuing. That's what critics do. Critics seek to silence the scoundrel, Jesus. They have always tried to do that. They've always tried to silence Jesus and his word. And there will always be people and powers in our world who seek to silence him. You see it happening today? It has always happened. In every generation. It's not the first time in the history of the world that the words of Jesus have offended people. It's not the only time his teachings have caused a backlash in society. His critics in the first century thought they had succeeded when they killed him. But remember where we started. Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what was coming. He knew what would happen before he even arrived there. We looked at these verses last week, but look at verses 31 and Uh, through 34 from chapter 18. And taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem for this purpose, that he would die and be raised again. Do you notice the astonishing detail in his prediction of what will happen in Jerusalem? It's incredible. He could successfully predict exactly what would happen to him in Jerusalem because of who he is. Because friends, when Jesus speaks, God speaks. And the word of God will be accomplished in all that it promises. It cannot be silenced. It will not be controlled. No earthly power, no matter how hard they try, can stop the purposes of God. They tried to silence Jesus by executing him on a Roman cross. And what happened? He was victorious. And his word continues on. So take heart. Even if at times it seems like our culture is trying to put a muzzle on the message of Jesus, his word will be accomplished. Now notice at the end of this, Luke says about the disciples, They understood none of these things. This saying, his prediction about his death and eventual resurrection was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. So as Jesus is journeying up to Jerusalem, even as Jesus is entering into the great city, he, and he alone, is the only one who understands what's ahead. He's leading the way. It's not like the disciples are saying, come on, Jesus, we got to get to Jerusalem. You have work to do there. 
let's go. It's time to go. No, Jesus is setting the pace. He's the one who is pushing everybody forward there so that he can accomplish this, his mission. Jesus knows what's ahead for you too, my friends. This afternoon, this week, this year, what challenges you'll face, and he promises to be with you in it. He has walked through suffering willingly, knowingly, so that none of us will ever have to walk alone in this world. He went willingly to Jerusalem, to a cross, to rescue you from the reality of sin in your life. So crowds celebrate the spectacle of Jesus. And critics seek to silence who they see as the scoundrel Jesus. But there's a third perspective in our text, one that I'd like you to consider. And that's the perspective of the citizens of the kingdom. Look at verses 29 and 30. When Jesus drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. This whole exchange between Jesus and the disciples and the ultimate finding of this colt that's never been ridden and then Jesus gets on it and enters into the city on top of it and they throw their cloaks down on the crowd and acclaim on the ground and claim him as king. This is the fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. A messianic one from Zechariah chapter 9 which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now we hear that Jesus was riding a donkey and we think that sounds weird, maybe lame, like he's trying to communicate that he's poor or humble. And there is an element of humility to this. But it's not because we see, you know, in our culture, we see horses as cool and donkeys as not as cool. But in the Old Testament, if a king was going to ride on a horse and go into a city, it was like a declaration of war. Kings would often ride donkeys. But they would ride donkeys into a city when they were coming as ambassadors of peace. And that's why Jesus is entering into the great city. Not to take it over as an earthly king like maybe the crowd hoped. It's good to be reminded that that the people of Israel were living under Roman oppression. And part of what they wanted was a Messiah to come in and overthrow the Romans and restore the great earthly kingdom of Israel. But God had a greater and grander purpose than that. And so Jesus doesn't come as a king who is declaring war on the city, but he comes 
as an ambassador of peace. Why? Because his greater purpose was to bring not earthly peace between people, but to bring peace between God and man. And because of our sin, we are estranged from God. The Bible says it's like we're at war with him. And so Jesus arrives to Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, to declare that he is a different kind of king entirely. One who comes to accomplish what only he could. The brokering of peace between God Almighty and humankind. And the way he would do that is by laying his life down for us. By sacrificing himself. So that all of our sin would be atoned for if we call on his name. And we would eternally be at peace with God. So notice what kind of king Jesus is and what he brings. He brings salvation. And so if the crowd sees Jesus as a spectacle and critics see Jesus as a scoundrel, citizens of the kingdom see Jesus as a savior. As the one who comes to save. And they understand that was why he entered in to the city of Jerusalem. Why he set his face there. So that he might save his people from their sins. So it begs the question, how do you become a citizen of this great and glorious kingdom? You're not born into it like many kingdoms. You can't claim citizenship in the eternal kingdom of Jesus because of your family heritage. So if you're here and you think, well, I'm a follower of Jesus just because my parents were, or my grandparents followed Jesus, so I'm a citizen of the kingdom. That's not how we claim citizenship. Citizenship in the kingdom requires a response on our part, motivated by faith in Jesus. Look at verse 31 with me. Jesus said to his disciples who he sent ahead, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. This is amazing. This donkey belonged to someone else, but Jesus claims to have authority over it anyway. Just imagine for a moment that Jesus was here today and he said to you, hey, I need you to head up to Mapleton, go into a particular garage there, and you will find a brand new Tesla. It's never been driven. The stickers are still on the windshield. And I need you to steal it. What would you say? You say, Jesus, I can't do that. What am I going to say when these people say, why are you stealing my Tesla? You're just going to tell them, the Lord has need of it. Can you imagine the faith it took for these two particular citizens of the kingdom to go and take this donkey? They had to trust Jesus. They had to believe in his authority. 
they had to recognize that Jesus has ultimate ownership over everything. And in doing so, they surrendered to Jesus. That's what's required to be a citizen of the kingdom. To surrender to Jesus, our Savior, by faith. It's interesting, John has an account of this episode as well, and if you know anything about the gospel writer John, he was one of Jesus' closest followers. We don't know for sure, but it's very possible that John was one of these two citizens, one of these two disciples that Jesus sent ahead. He often was singled out from the rest of the disciples and had special experiences because of how close he was to Jesus. And John says in chapter 12, verse 16 of his account, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So these two followers of Jesus didn't understand what Jesus was asking them to do in the moment. It's not as though Jesus sat them down and said, okay, let's go through the Old Testament scriptures. I'm going to explain to you that you're going to go get a cult and you're going to find it there and you're going to bring it to me. And that's because it's a fulfillment of these Old Testament passages. No, Jesus asked them to do this for him by faith. Do you ever feel like, God, I don't know why you're you're asking me to walk through this experience in my life. I don't know what's ahead. I don't know what this means if I make this decision. Those moments require faith, just as this moment did for his followers. And there are things that God intends for us in our life or asks us to do or walk through here on the earth that don't make sense in the moment, that might not make sense at all until we see Jesus as these disciples did in his glorified state in heaven when he reveals everything to us. That's why we need faith. And so sometimes Jesus calls us to surrender to him or to follow him and doesn't give us all the information. He doesn't always tell us what's ahead. 